0: Colossians 4 verses 5 and 6. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, as you've heard, um, our church had its annual retreat, and uh, there were a bunch of us that were able to go. We had a great weekend at Cape and Springs, and our guest speaker is um, Dr. Uh, Reverend, Reverend Dr. Uh, Zach Eswine, Pastor Zach, which he prefers to be known as. But um, Zach is uh, a longtime friend. We went to seminary together. And um, had a chance to uh, maintain a friendship over the years, not seeing each other as much as we want. Uh, he's married to Jessica. They have three kids that they're caring for. Uh, Zach is pastor of Riverside Church in St. Louis, and he's also the professor of preaching at Covenant Seminary, where a few of us went to. Uh, Zach spends a lot of time um, not only ministering in his local city, but outside of that, and. Um, one of the things that I'll say uh, about this man is, um, you know, all of us face trial and suffering through our lives, and uh, this brother is no stranger to that. And it can take us one or two ways. Uh, it can make us bitter and angry, and we can get stuck, um, or we wrestle through, wrestle through, wrestle through, and God does a beautiful work of humility, love, love and prophetic insight and wisdom, and I praise God for that work in Zach's life. Um, he is, uh, has a lot to share and a lot to give. He's given uh, some of it this weekend. I'm gonna invite you up, brother. We're so glad to have you here, and I uh, wanna pray for him before he opens up God's word to us. Thanks. Thank you. All right. God, thank you so much for Zach's life, his story, the way that he has uh, persevered in his love for you, the gifts you've given him for his family and his ministry, and thank you that he can be with us this evening. Uh, Our confidence, Lord, is in your Holy Spirit. It's in your word, and we pray that you would give Zach that confidence even now. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Welcome. Thank you.
0: It's a privilege to be with you. I feel very thankful to uh, be with Glenn and Meg and to hear the pastors pray for you uh, before the service, and to hear the heart of people, and to experience some of your community this weekend with all the ways that so many of you serve one another and uh, in such a real and non-pretentious way. It's, it's a joy to be with you. Thank you for allowing me to come. We've heard these words read from the book of Colossians, written by a Jewish man, who was a convert to Christianity. And he's talking about, uh, to other Christians, about how other than Christian people are meant to experience Christian people. When I think about the Apostle talking about this, uh, a statement by a, a, a comedian, Ricky Gervais, comes to mind. The noble profession of comedy, so many of us have our various vocations. And if you've not heard of him before, you know, com- comedy has its own taste of different people, but he's quite gifted with humor. But He's also a human being, and he's had interactions with Christians, because Ricky Gervais is not a Christian, as he says. And he says this, it's not that I don't believe that the teachings of Jesus would make this a better world if they were followed. It's just that they are rarely followed. Gandhi summed it up really well. He said, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. Gervais goes on, Jesus was a man. And if you forget all that rubbish about being half God and believe the non supernatural acts accredited to him, he was a man whose wise words many other men would still follow. His message was usually one of forgiveness and kindness. Ricky Gervais quotes Gandhi in saying, They don't like Christians, they like Christ as long as we remove the supernatural elements and we don't like Christians. And I'd like to spend the bulk of our minutes seeing why their critique is fair. But I do want to pause just for a moment and ask you to consider, even in your respect for Gandhi and even in, I hope, your respect for the dignity of Ricky Gervais, Seriously. I wish if you could have the opportunity to have coffee with him or something, he could experience something of Christians he apparently has never experienced before. But the bulk of our time on the fairness of their critique, one thing that isn't quite right, right? Yeah? Is, is it okay to suggest that even Gandhi got something that isn't quite right. We would call it today stereotyping, bias. That is, because we legitimately have a painful or harrowing experience with one kind of person, we assume that every kind of person relates the same way. And so we remove the individuality of each individual person, and we brand the whole community as all acting and believing and doing the exact same. We think of that as an expression of intolerance. We think of that as an unfortunate bias and prejudice. We think of that as stereotyping. I'd like to ask you to consider that when Gandhi says he doesn't like your Christians. As we're gonna see, his critique is fair. But it's not fair too. Because though it's sad that he and Ricky Gervais have not experienced the genuine sacrificial love of a Jesus following person It simply isn't true in history or in our own moment, culturally, that every Christian that exists is arrogant and bigoted. There are truly humble Christians among us who inspire us by their humility and their service of love, even to those who would consider themselves enemies of these Christians. Now on to what's fair. It is a real thing that people in our culture experience Christians in such a way that they think of Christians in immediate stereotype. It isn't new, if you are a Christian, it isn't new, this phenomena. In the first century of Rome, in which Paul was writing, beneath Roman occupation, historians and scholars would point out to us that there were three three statements about Christians which made Roman citizens afraid which made Roman citizens feel morally superior. And of course, each of these three statements were false. The first assumption about first century Christians is that they were cannibals because it was heard told that they ate flesh and drank blood. They were also assumed to be incestuous Because they referred to each other as brother and sister and kissed each other when they greeted. It's called a holy kiss. And they were referred to as atheists. They use the term differently than we do. They wouldn't bow to Caesar and they wouldn't worship multiple gods, they worshipped one God. And so, these cannibalistic, incestuous atheists were considered trouble. It isn't new for Christians to be mislabeled, nor is it new for Christians to earn it sometimes. And so, the Apostle Paul, this Jewish man converted to Christianity, is writing to mostly non-Jewish people who are also now new Christian converts. They were polytheists, and now they worship Jesus. And in this short talk from Paul in this letter, you see three things. You see the private talk of Christians. You see the public talk of Christians. And you see the personal relational presence of Christians. Other than Christian people are meant to understand the private talk of Christians in a certain way. I'll show it to you right here. It's when he said walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. He uses that word outsider and we might cringe because of the way we use this English word, the connotation of this English word in our current cultural moment. Paul's writing in first century. He isn't using the term outsider in a pejorative way. He's using it as an observable fact. Folks who are not part of our church. Folks who don't associate with Jesus things. Folks who don't follow Jesus. We we have this idea in all of our various groups. Uh, our political groups, the sports teams that we follow, the social clubs that we're part of, we would simply say, oh, yeah, that person's not part of our group. We don't necessarily mean that badly, just as an observable fact. And so the Apostle Paul, when he says here, can walk in wisdom toward outsiders. He isn't being pejorative. And you know this not only because of the use of the word but also because the context itself. He's calling Christians to treat other than Christian people with grace and wisdom out of love. So it's not a pejorative thing, even though culturally we might hear this word translated in English and feel a jolt within us. But we overcome that connotation to what he meant And then we realize this is one Christian talking to other Christians about how to relate to non-Christian people. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, how do you imagine Christians talk about you? I, I hope kindly. And if you are a follower of Jesus, When other than Christian people aren't around, and it's just you and the Christians talking about the other than Christian people, how do you talk? Because we're listening in here to a conversation of one Christian with other Christians about how they are to relate to other than Christian people. How Jesus followers are to relate to non Jesus followers. It's a private conversation. This is a letter written between them. You see what I'm getting at? And so the very first thing that has to happen when we think about our cultural moment and we think about the voice that Jesus' followers are meant to have, it begins before they speak. Our call begins long before we open our mouth in public speech, To other than Christian people. Our call begins in our own heart, in community together, with how it is we're going to relate and speak. So may I ask you, dear Christian, how do you speak about other than Christian people when they're not around? Do you speak Christianly about them when they can't hear you? Because out of the heart the mouth speaks, Jesus said. And cultivating a heart in which we would talk to one another in this way is part of our walk with Jesus. Because after all for Paul to be concerned with how Christians relate to other than Christian people isn't unique to Paul. It's The Savior Paul is trying to preach. It's it's the teaching of Jesus. How is it, Jesus says, that folks who aren't Christians will know who the Christians are? Jesus said, it was by the way Christians related out of love to one another and to the world around them. And so Paul, with private conversation with other Christians... Is talking about this very thing. And so it's an opportunity, if you're a follower of Jesus, just to repent today. It's an opportunity. You can invite me to the same. We are meant to speak of other than Christian people when they're not around, no differently than we do when they are around. We are meant to speak with the quality of Jesus in his kind regard for who they are. So there's the first thing, private talk between Christians and what we learn from that. That isn't easy when you're at work, is it? It isn't easy when you're in family or in community group. It isn't easy if you've experienced pain Hardship, slander, mischaracterization from an other-than-Christian person, it isn't easy. And yet, this is our call in our private speech. And may I say, if you're not a follower of Jesus, I hope this encourages you. And if you have experienced Christians in their public speech, which we'll get to in a moment, as anything but Christian to you, the way Ricky Gervais had or Gandhi had, I hope you can see that in those moments, we're not responding to you the way the book we believe tells us to. But I'd also like to gently ask you, you who aren't a follower of Jesus, in light of your own standards of morality, how do you speak about people you disagree with when they're not around Because the Jesus way begins to confront us and change us. Because Jesus just isn't like any other leader. Well, he can transform our private speech. And our hearts begin to soften toward the courage that love requires. So that, secondly, our public speech, our public speech, takes on a particular quality. It's right before this. In verse 2 of this same chapter, Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Here's the Apostle Paul uh, in prison for his Christian faith. Somehow, by the grace of God, not bitter in his private talk, by the very other-than-Christian persons who are persecuting him, And he's thinking about his public speech, the opportunities he's going to have to publicly talk to non-Christian people, and he's asking for prayer. Why? What is it that he longs for? What is it that he wants non-Christian people to experience when he speaks to them in Christ's name? He wants them to experience first the mystery of Christ. That's what he says there. Open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. So the central concern of this Jewish man beneath Roman occupation as an oppressed minority among Christian people speaking to Gentile Christians, non-Christian people, he wants to make sure that what they hear from him is Jesus. Jesus. Now, I would just ask you to consider, as you think about the public talk of Christians that you know, the public speech of Christians on social media, the way the other-than-Christian world hears the public talk of Christians. And I'd like to ask you to consider that what someone who's not a Christian is primarily supposed to hear from us is the mystery of Jesus. That means some things. We're all adults. You can differ with me. I'm going to ask you to consider something. It means that as important As our political perspectives are, whatever they may be, doesn't it mean that even those political perspectives surrender to a prior message of greater news? That when push comes to shove, doesn't it mean that Paul, as a Jewish man, who tells us in the Scriptures in the book of Romans, for example, that he loves his own People. He would give his own life for his own people. Yet, he is an apostle, a preacher to the Gentiles. Doesn't it mean that this Jewish man who loves his own culture is when push comes to shove, wanting to proclaim not the beauties and enjoyments of his own culture, but to proclaim the mystery of Jesus? So that if you have one shot to say something to Ricky Gervais, it would be the mystery of Jesus. Everything else would fade in comparison. Well, you can look at the words and see if I'm pulling something that's not out of there or not. You can look there and sort it out. But this is his prayer. And not only that people will hear the mystery of Christ, but that there will be an open door for the Word. Verse 3, that God may open to us a door for the Word. The metaphor there is the door is closed. The door opens. Paul is hoping that when he speaks of Jesus, the person listening whose heart and mind is sort of like a closed door, maybe because they don't understand, maybe because they've been hurt in some way and they have emotional objection, experiential obstacles. Maybe they have an intellectual question that's a challenge to the mystery of Christ. And Paul is saying, oh, that there would be an open door, that such a person would open their soul and life To the mystery of Christ that when they hear me speak of Jesus something would be transformed inside of them and they would go from hard-hearted disinterest to soft-hearted welcome and he says thirdly he prays that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak Paul has a hard time making things clear The Apostle Peter says as much in one of Peter's letters. He just says it plainly, that some of the stuff Peter writes is hard to understand. He also calls Paul's words Scripture. So Paul knows this about himself. He's a Jewish man trying to speak to Gentiles. I'm a white guy from Henryville, Indiana, trying to communicate in Washington, D.C. in this moment. and asking that Jesus would be set in front so that your heart would be open to him and that I wouldn't make a mess of it or make it confusing, but be plain and clear. This is the desire that Paul has so that if an other-than-Christian person hears a Christian talk, what the other-than-Christian person will take away with is that person cares about Jesus. That person seems to care that my own heart would be softened toward Jesus. And I don't agree, but they sure were clear. I don't have to wonder. So Paul, out of this private conversation, is indicating the kind of public speech, not only for him, But for every Christian, in verse 6, let your speech always... It's that word that really humbles me. And I think, ah, I just got to kick the can right there. Let your speech always be gracious. Very, very few people in our culture on whatever side of the aisle they work will tell you this. But the gospel's distinctive, you see. Let your speech, Christian, always, without exception, be gracious. Now, if you're on the receiving end of this, this is remarkable. You are meant to experience grace from Christian people who talk to you. Isn't that something? Room, lots of room, patience, unmerited favor, the benefit of the doubt. Seasoned with salt. Not some kind of just platitudes or empty talk. But substantive, mattering things. And you're meant to be listened to by Christian talkers. Because it says, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. You see the assumption there? In order for me to know how I ought to answer each person... It must mean there's no formula for every person, which must mean I must have to listen to who's in front of me individually before I stereotype them so that I hear them. (laughs) If you're not a follower of Jesus, I don't know if this has been your experience at all, but when Christians talk in public, you're supposed to experience grace. You're supposed to experience meaningful substance. And you're, that is relevant to you, and you're supposed to feel that you were heard. Isn't that amazing? Well, this Jewish convert to Christianity is saying this from prison. He isn't taking his cue from the political pressure put upon him in the culture that he's in. He's taking his cue from the gospel of Jesus. Well, when I was uh, younger, uh, which doesn't mean it doesn't happen still, (laughs) but when I was younger, I thought I had the opportunity to do some public speaking on behalf of Christians at a conference, and I was in college, and our group was going to go to this college, and so I thought I'd make t-shirts and our group decided we'd make t-shirts. We were going to go to this conference, and if any other than Christian or Christian purpose was, person was there, we figured at least they would see our shirt and see what we were all about. So we designed a temperature gauge, a thermo- thermometer, to go on the front, and it asked the question, what's your temp? What's your temperature? What's your temp? And of all the verses in the Bible, we could choose for a one-shot opportunity if we could say anything we could ever say as a Christian to a future Gandhi in the world or a future Ricky. Of, of all the verses in the Bible, I chose one from the book of Revelation. Because <laughs> on the front, it said, what's your tent? And on the back, it quotes Jesus saying, I would that you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. What the? (laughs) What was my mindset? Where does that come from? How do I, in the name of the, the one who was slandered and beaten unjustly, who was crucified and on the cross in the most violent means of capital punishment, unjustly said, forgive them, How could I in his name think, I got one shot. I'm going to ask you what your temperature is. And I didn't even know what I was doing because biblically speaking, those words from Jesus in the book of Revelation aren't for non-Christian people. It's in the letters to the seven churches He's knocking on the door of Christians, those who proclaim to be Christians. And he's saying to Christians, I would that you were hot or cold, but because you who claim my name are lukewarm, I will spit you out of my mouth. That's not some type of warning to other than Christian people. That's an in-house conversation of the Lord with his servants. Not only was I zealous without knowledge of the Bible, I was zealous without love. I didn't know, though I could quote the Bible, I didn't know that I'm meant to walk wisely, always gracious, so I know how to answer each one. And that is how people are meant to experience Christians. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have found yourself in your private speech speaking unchristianly about other than Christian people, if you've found your public speech or public typing to be other than gracious and wise, and say you're sorry, huh? It's just the Lord paid for this. This is why He died for you. He died to take the penalty of this kind of sin in your life and in mine. He rose from the grave to crush this kind of sin in your life and in mine. He invites you to come to Him to free you from this kind of sin in your life and in mine. That the world may know who you are and whose you are. After all, as we've hinted at all along this weekend, the person so concerned for other than Christian people is Saul of Tarsus, a man who's needed all kinds of grace, just like me. And maybe you need it too. And he invites you to it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these few moments with your book open and your word set in front of us and we, we ask that you would enable us to see your heart and your character and that you would continue to refashion us. Thank you for how gracious you've been to each one of us. Thank you that you've known how to answer each one of us individually. In your name we give thanks. Amen.